Luxembourg supported restrictions on economic intercourse between British merchants and French merchants on very similar grounds, that merchants would have split loyalties between Britain and France, and they would prioritize their economic interests over the national security interests of Britain, albeit this is in vastly different circumstances. But the point being that France at that time was Britain's chief antagonist and rival, and Burke understood that free, the promotion of free trade should be sensitive to the geopolitical national security considerations of an empire at that time. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Tom Saroof. Johnny and Marlo are both out today, but for our guest, we have Gregory Collins, who is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science and Program on Ethics, Politics, and Economics at Yale University. His book on Edmund Burke's economic thought, entitled Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Greg's scholarly and teaching interests include the history of political thought, the philosophical and ethical implications of political economy, American political development, constitutional theory and practice, and political theory of abolition. He has published or his forthcoming articles on Burke's economic thought in the review of politics, Adam Smith's imperial political and economic thought in the history of political thought, Burke's and Smith's views on Britain's East India Company and Monopoly, in the Journal of the History of Economic Thought, Frederick Douglass's Constitutional Theory and American Political Thought, Burke's Plan for the Abolition of the Slave Trade and Slavery and Abolition, and Burke's Intellectual Relationship with Leo Strauss and the Straussian Political Tradition in Perspectives on Political Science. So he's a very busy man, and we welcome him to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk today. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. And if you would like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Greg, we are recording from our Pittsburgh Regional Conference where you are a speaker and you delivered a lecture earlier today on Edmund Burke's political economy and his approach to what you called crony pre-capitalism. So it'd be great, I think, if you would start by talking about your lecture to our students at the conference, which I would add was very well done. Yes, absolutely. And you said to sort of re-articulate the argument? Yeah, if you would, in a, if you, just a few minutes, and we could delve into some of those themes more later. Thank you, um, again, uh, Tom, uh, Emily Corrin, the ISI team, um, for the opportunity to talk here. I have been the beneficiary of ISI programs in the past as a graduate student, so I'm deeply grateful and indebted to the support that um, the organization has given me throughout the years. The subject of my talk today was Edmund Burke's political economy in specific regard to the idea of what today we consider to be crony capitalism and how we understand capitalism in its broadest social, ethical, religious dimensions. So first, Burke was a critic of today what we would consider to be crony capitalism. And in my talk, I phrased it as pre-capitalism because Capitalism itself did not, as I understand it, did not take off truly until the 19th and 20th centuries. Burke was writing in a time in a rising commercial society, but not necessarily a fully capitalist one. But uh, it was a sort of precursor to modern capitalist society. One of Burke's first major legislative initiatives in parliament, and he served in parliament for almost three decades, was what was called the Freeport Act of 1766. And this is, not many people know about this act, but it's representative representative of his approach to crony pre-capitalists and uh, crony merchants. 
in this piece of legislation, which Burke was one of the leading proponents of, the British Parliament established new six new trade ports in the British West Indies to facilitate the free flow of goods between the British West Indies and the North American colonies. Burke supported the legislation. He believed that the free trade of goods would promote public prosperity in the British Empire between the West Indies and the American colonies. It would reduce the jealousies and antagonisms that otherwise existed between the two parties uh, and uh, promote the commercial prestige and power of the British Empire. Practically speaking, Burke, although he is known as a famous orator uh, and he is famous for his eloquence and his uh, many decorated speeches throughout his parliamentary career, he was also, and I emphasize in my book, he was also a practical legislator who engaged in seemingly mundane what today we consider to be public policy analysis, empirical analysis of, uh, in this case, uh, commercial data. And with regard to the Freeport Act, he engaged in this sort of data-driven approach to understanding trade relations in the British West Indies. And also he encouraged, convened meetings, received petitions from merchants at this time who were going to be impacted by uh, trade reform in the 1760s in Britain. And in this case, Burke was keen on making sure to, and his his, uh, his, uh, party, which was supporting this piece of legislation, to take into account a wide range of of opinions and perspectives and views on the appropriate ways to enact trade reform. Now, one prevailing pattern at this time was for heads of state, for legislators to gather the insights of one or two, a select few, number of powerful traders. and, And it was not surprising that trade regulations would reflect, would advance the self-interest of these select powerful merchants. Adam Smith, a decade after the Freeport Act, he provided a famous, one of his more famous insights about how merchants who advise legislatures on trade policy tend to enact uh, support policies that are counterproductive to the common good, in which inhibit market competition, narrow the, the range of, of, of buyers uh, in, in a market economy, and therefore uh, was detrimental to the broader commercial prosperity um, of, uh, of a people and a nation. Burke, as a legislator, was also aware of this dimension of the difficulties of enacting trade reform. So in the Freeport Act, he gathered insights from a wide range of mer- merchants, understood, uh, uh, trying to take into account their views and differing opinions on the efficacy of trade reform in the British Indies. And the product was a Freeport Act of 1766. Uh, which again established new trade ports, loosened trade regulations, um, and uh, with the hope, in the hope that it would uh, promote commercial prosperity both in the British West Indies and the North American colonies. The long-term impact of the Freeport Act was not clear. Uh, it, were, it did not uh, generate the, the level of commercial activity that I think its supporters had hoped for, um, but nevertheless, it symbolically represented a dent in the so the mercantilist steel of the time in the British Empire, which which reflexively tried to impose uh, prohibitions, duties, trade restraints um, on the, fro- the flow of goods within the British Empire. So at the very least, Burke was um, a leading member of the school of thought that believed that loosening, easing the flow, loosening trade regulations, easing the flow of goods would actually promote the general prosperity um, within the British Empire. In addition, span of a decade or so later, a little more than a decade later, Burke supported free trade between Britain and uh, England and Ireland. Uh, on very similar grounds, that free trade promotes mutual benefits between parties, can reduce uh, jealousies and tensions between them, and uh, generally promote the uh, the commercial prosperity uh, of the British Empire. And these are examples of what, why Burke is known as a proponent of free trade. 
But as I discussed in my talk, Burke did not turn this general endorsement of free trade into an inflexible principle. And there were important exceptions to his support for free trade. The first most significant one was his um, embrace of the Navigation Acts, uh, which were laws that restricted the flow of trade to uh, be maintained within the British Empire. And Smith himself also uh, supported the older form of these acts as well. Uh, Burke's thinking and Smith's thinking was that at that time, the flow the flow of international commerce was uh, naturally intersected with national security concerns. If you cannot control the waterways, if you cannot control the security of your ships, if you cannot ensure the integrity of your trade routes across the globe, then it would uh, inhibit your security and also inhibit your commercial uh, potential for commercial prosperity. So the thing was that the Navigation Acts both promoted promoted both of these interests by ensuring that goods stand British ships, manned by British crews, um, that's of goods that circulate throughout the British Empire. A couple other exemptions. One, uh, another exception was his um, opposition to the Anglo-French Treaty of 1786, which intended to promote trade relations between England and France. This is a clear case in which um, Britain, reflecting Whig apprehensions of the time that were skeptical of promoting trade relations with a Catholic kingdom, France. Um, Burke thought that this was a way for France to uh, increase, widen its uh, economic, political, imperial influence um, across the globe at the expense of Britain. Uh, and then during uh, the French Revolutionary Wars in the 1790s, Burke supported restrictions on economic intercourse between Britain and uh, British merchants and French merchants on very similar grounds um, that uh, uh, merchants would have split loyalties between Britain and France, and uh, they would prioritize their economic interests over the um, the uh, national security interests of Britain, uh, albeit this in vastly different circumstances. But the point being that France at the time was Britain's chief antagonist and rival, and Burke understood that free, the promotion of tra- free, tra- free trade should be sensitive to the geopolitical national security considerations of an empire at that time. Now, more broadly speaking, uh, Burke was a supporter of free trade, generally, and he was a firm defender of market economies, the competitive price system. But as I discussed in my talk, Burke understood free markets to operate in a wider social, ethical, religious context. And this argument comes out in his most famous writing, The Reflections on the Revolution of France. Burke was not a systematic thinker, so one has to sort of parse some details together and tease out some implications of his, uh, of his reasoning to uh, paint a coherent picture of his thoughts. But um, from what I gather, this is the best I could um, interpret of how he understood this connection. Burke's attack on the French Revolution was an attack on the ways that, in his judgment, the revolutionaries sought to uproot um, the ancient customs and traditions that had built up French civilization up to that point in the late 18th century, uh, including uh, the monarchy, the hereditary nobility, the property rights of the Catholic Church, the property rights of the, of the, of the aristocracy. Um, and uh, for Burke, this was a, 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 revolt, a revolt against human nature. Um, it would lead to social engineering. It was informed by abstract, rationalistic principles, untethered from any sense of historical wisdom, knowledge, or circumstance. That's a general argument um, in his attack on the French Revolution. But in the book, he also provides specific economic, economic arguments that are overlooked. Um, one, the, uh, he defended the sanctity of, private, of property rights. And the concrete object at the time that was under attack was property rights of the, the Catholic Church in France, which uh, were, was seized by um, uh, the French Revolutionary National Assembly. Um, and uh, in addition, the French Revolution uh, released um, what, paper money called Assignas, which uh, ended up um, causing hyperinflation, uh, uh, as, which was exacerbated by other factors as well. 
Um, it dissolved creditor-debtor relations. Um, it weakened the sense of trust among French uh, men and women at that time. Um, and uh, and so you put these arguments together. There, uh, Burke provides an economic critique of the uh, the French revolutionary uh, policies. But most important, uh, his philosophical argument about the connection between ethics uh, and economics was that markets themselves, commercial activity, uh, grew out of ethical, social, religious preconditions that uh, were manifested by religious establishments, by the aristocracy, both of which uh, spread, diffused the spirit of learning and education and religion uh, throughout the general populace. Uh, for Burke, these two pillars of stability and moderation established the necessary foundation for the emergence of a pr- unpredictable activity, commercial activity, market exchange, which uh, was um, often uh, was uh, was not uh, was informed by the vagaries of individual behavior that was not as stable as landed property rights uh, or religious institutions. Um, therefore, for Burke, an embrace of what today we consider to be modernity, commercial activity, proto-capitalism. Um, it was for this for these developments. It was necessary to ground um, them in firmer sources of authority that could endure over time to again provide this element of stability to calm the the, the vicissitudes of, um, of of market activities. Uh, and for him, if you erode, if you dissolve these pre-economic, pre-commercial foundations, then it would both lead to uh, social engineering, destruction of uh, uh, economic prosperity, and a destruction of the relig- uh, religion and, uh, and uh, the aristocratic nobility, um, which for Burke was, uh, would, would pretend doom for civilization. Mm. I'd love to sort of, I guess, probe deeper into that tension. For I, I wonder, to I think also we could delve into, I guess, a gr- examining the difference between Smith's understanding of economics and Burke's approach is it would it be right in saying that Smith had a more I guess closer to like Locke or Rousseau like a more rationalist or a uh, an institution of an economic regime on more abstract principles such as like you know abstract universal natural law whereas Burke had a more um, I guess organic understanding of the basis of market societies and then also thinking about how promoting, I guess, commerce and promoting the pursuit of profit can be corrosive to traditional ways of doing things and how Burke, and you, you were sort of alluding to this at the end here, and how Burke would want to respond to that uh, in order to not dissolve the ties or dissolve the social ties that bind communities together. That's a very sort of general, general question, but I think you can fill in a lot of the gaps there. Yes, yeah, so thank you for those, for those good questions. So for Smith, so he was not, he did not embrace Lockean and Habesian conceptions of a state of nature. He was in the, comfortably in the Scottish Enlightenment tradition of historiography, which understood economic activity, uh, you know, social and economic life to start with uh, hunting and gathering, to pasturage, to agriculture, to commercial society. And so he was not rationalistic in that social contractarian tradition. If one had sort of a rationalist spectrum in the 18th century. You know, Hume would be on one side, the anti-rationalist, and the let's say the physiocrats, the French physiocrats who were advocating a free free grain trade based based on rationalistic universal principles, would be on the other side. Burke would probably be in the middle, leaning towards Hume, and then Smith would 
be in the middle, leaning towards the French physiocrats. You can envision that uh, spectrum. So uh, Smith was certainly aware of the rationalistic pretensions of the age. And I should clarify when they critical of this idea of rationalism, not critical of the idea that you know man is you know it possesses the rational faculty to reason to make judgments between good and bad. At that time, rationalism meant a a form of reasoning that was consciously antagonistic to the the customs, the prejudices, the traditions, the privileges that had grounded European civilization um, in a uh, that, that had formed a, an inheritance um, to be uh, to be absorbed rather than rejected. And so it was not uncommon. It was not a coincidence that coincidence that at that time rationalists were secular minded individuals who either embraced the form of deism and at its logical extreme, according to the critics, the criticism of Burke and others, it would lead towards atheism. So, you know, there are various ways to read this interpretation, but at the very least, Smith himself was, I was certainly, uh, certainly uh, not a um, an uh, abstract rationalist in that sense. And, uh, and, and in Smith and Burke, there's a famous quotation I mentioned in my book um, that was reported that Smith and Burke, after they had talked with one another, realized that they had, um, or Burke realized that uh, Smith held views on political economy very similar to um, Burke himself. So they both avoided the, 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 the rationalist excesses of the time period. However, they both understood the virtues and benefits of market activities. Smith is far more famous in this regard as well because of his book, The Wealth of Nations, in which he argued it was for uh, the, uh, generally uh, for free trade, for ending pro- unnecessary prohibitions and duties on the flow of goods and services, um, a free market in grain. Most people don't realize if you read The Wealth of Nations, it's more or less a dry, dry empirical analysis of the public policy of the time period. Um, he mentions the invisible hand only once in that text, um, uh, and most of it's so yet more historically conditioned uh, material. But both of uh, both of are similar, very similar in their endorsement of market economies. In terms of Smith, he was not as religious as Burke. He was more sympathetic to religious the de, the de, 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 de decentralization of religion, so individual sects, denominations could use the incentive structure, not like market economies, to attract as many members as possible. Burke was insistent on preserving the Church of England as um, as a national religious institution. Um, there are additional tensions in their thought. Burke, in general, was more likely to retain sort of the old colonial project of the Navigation Acts. Smith, I mentioned, did support the early form of the Acts, but at the end of the Wealth of Nations, he more or less concedes that at some point these Acts they're outliving their utility and they need to go, which at that time was a radical proposition to end, to emancipate, to, to um, enable Americans to branch off and declare independence. And uh, so there's some tensions uh, in that regard. Um, and then also, I guess, most important, and um, I mentioned in my talk, John Pocock, a great intellectual story. He, he, he was provided this argument, so I'll give credit to him and I'm convinced by it. Um, that's the Scottish alignment, Hume, Smith, other thinkers, uh, Ferguson, Robertson, you know, they didn't highlight, they understood the importance of chivalry, these pre-commercial values in civilizing society um, from the medieval, medieval era through the early modern era. But they didn't make this, 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 this as sharp an argument as Burke does that chivalry, pre-commercial attachments were the necessary foundations for specifically the rise of commercial society. Um, it's a little difficult. There are varying interpretations on this issue. Um but I think I think it's fair to say that Burke traced a far, firmer connection between the one, this pre-commercial foundation of chivalry, chivalry and virtue, and the rise of commercial society. While the Scots believe that generally, generally the, the 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 rise of commerce was sort of coextensive with the rise of civility. Uh, so there are different ways to interpret this relationship. But uh, but that's one way to think about uh, the the question. There was a broader question of whether ethics precedes markets or markets precedes ethics.
And this leads to your final point about profit being corrosive of custom. Yep. This is one of the key dilemmas of market economies, commercial societies, and capitalism. If Is it possible to retain anything with intrinsic worth if it can be monetized, commodified, purchased for some price? Um, and this was a, you know, a key, key, key crux of the debate in that time period about what can be preserved, what can, what should not be preserved. Burke's solution, admittedly imperfect, it's difficult to apply many of his prescriptions today in a post-industrial, post-industrial society, uh, in society of secularization. But at the time period, that's what, this is why he supported pre- preserving the national church, Church of England, preserving the hereditary nobility, preserving their privileges, including the primogeniture, the right to the firstborn son to inherit the estate. He was so insistent on preserving the common law system in general. Um, as providing um, a, uh, protection for property, st- pr- stable protection of property rights throughout the generations, among various reasons. And generally speaking, just the 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 insight, the fundamental insight that our social relations um, sometimes can be, should be commodified, monetized. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to live in a material, prosperous society. Which is why Burke defended the competitive price system and so on. But in the reflection, this comes out of the reflections on the revolution in France. Not all social relations can be and should be reduced to what he, at the time period, was called voluntary contracts or temporary contracts, temporary relations, transactional exchange, quid pro quo arrangements. Some relationships require deeper sources of meaning, authority, belonging, attachment that transcended the nature of economic contracts. And for Burke, if one retained these deeper sources of connection among human beings, then that was that was a necessary precondition for commercial prosperity. But if you dissolve those other social, religious, ethical connections, then a free society with free markets and simply freedom of the individual would devolve into um, would lose the love, affection, trust that is a requisite for any flourishing society, material, materially flourishing and um, religiously, socially flourishing. Yeah, and I think one of the other things I remember from Burke, I think it's in the Re- Reflections of the Revolution in France, is that like affection is the basis of society, but not only just society in general, that which binds us together by affection, by you know familial ties, but also in the absence of that, which is what he notices in the French Revolution, is the French Revolution is going to take that and raise it to the ground. And on the abstract, on the on the uh, foundation of abstract principles that have never been, or abstract you know ideologies that have never been tried, well, what, what do you get left is the terror, and that's what you get the reign of terror. And the the, the reign of terror, 40,000 people, some 40,000 people in France are murdered at the guillotine at the hand of the state. But I think that gives rise to this conception of the state. And so I'm just wondering, like, from Burke's perspective, and I'd love to hear, you know, as a scholar of Burke and as a political economist and philosopher in your own right, how do you see, I guess, voluntary society or a society that is devoid what is the relationship between the rise of the state as a modern political organization and tool and these more sorts of traditional ways of being and living in community yes um, so you you are absolutely right for Burke, what tied together society was this idea of affection or sentiment which for him was not this watery notion of you know let's all hold hands, but it were they were kind. They were these are concrete senti- sentiments of attachment that were forged um, in families and what he called little platoons and uh, social organizations. Our in his time period, the classes, the orders, the ranks of society that that nourished 
individuals with, uh, as I mentioned, a sense of belonging and purpose and meaning, attachment that otherwise cannot be nourished uh, as uh, individuals in isolation. And so affections and sentiments um, were crucial uh, for the connective tissue that connected human beings with one another. And specifically also, we have to remember, Burke was a member of the Anglican Church. He was defending the Church of England. He was defending Protestant Christianity. And so the religious, so the ethos, the, the nobility, again, these were key indispensable leaders in society in spreading the blessings of education um, and religion that, that nourished these sentiments of attachment precisely because they were not necessarily based on reducing social relations simply to immediate uh, u- u- utility. In terms of the rise of the state, they, I think it's very fair to say that the rise of the state and the, the rise of the responsibilities that the state have the state has the state has assumed. Um, it's not a coincidence that that has led to the the decrease of what previously were the responsibilities of your institutions that today we consider to be civil society. We discussed this um, during my talk. Uh, civil, civil society, including religious uh, institutions, social institutions, philanthropic institutions, mutual aid societies, film, uh, philanthropies, and so on. And the and so this uh, Burke really anticipates Tocqueville's insights into this and democracy in America. Tocqueville is even more famous, and I think even more eloquent, eloquent than Burke in, in tracing this connection. If you have the rise of the state, you have the rise of administrative despotism, administrative uh, centralization, then that would discourage individuals uh, combining together to form voluntary associations to meet these needs that would be difficult to meet um, as uh, individuals in isolation. And there's a, there's a key strand of this thinking that, that continues in the 20th century, how uh, the, the isolation of the individual has, is there a coincidence, coincidence between that development and the augmentation um, of the state uh, as well? So Burke, I think, is, he, was a, he, 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 he was a precursor to those arguments. He anticipated those arguments because he believed in the French Revolution, it, the revolutionaries, the philosophs, the, uh, the moneyed interest, all these intellectuals and, and mover, movers and shakers of the revolution conceived of the individuals as uh, simply individuals with no prior attachments to kin, country, tradition, custom, and therefore could be manipulated based on the, uh, the, vision, the social engineering visions of uh, those in power. And and for Burke, this was a this would be a ruinous development, both economically, politically, religiously, and socially. Yeah, speaking of Tocqueville, I was recently reading his uh, memoir on pauperism, and one of the points he he makes uh, about the difference between public and private charity, which even though public charity might, even though it does, he I think he calls it moral hazards, or maybe that's something that we that's a modern uh, term, moral hazard, some of the unintended consequences. But one of those consequences is that instead of you know. If I need money and you're giving it to me directly, you and I have now have a, a relationship, a more formal relationship, where you're actually invested in my genuine well-being. Well, with the state, that's completely anonymized, and so that's one of his arguments for the why he why he gives preference for private charity versus public charity. It's like a genuine virtue and a genuine a genuine relationship that's been formed versus sort of even though the state might have maybe the general welfare would suggest that the state has role to play in making sure that those least well-off in our society can at least live if not, you know, at the same level as everyone else. But it's, I, it's just, it's just an interesting point that these things later get brought in. There's, they're still very current issues, a lot, a lot of relevant to, relevance still with Burke. I want I'm really interested though, because it seems today that a lot of our social institutions, civic society has really broken down so part of the, your title of your book is Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy. 
And so it seems to me that manners, which sounds maybe like an off-topic concept for a book on political economy, is actually really important. And it sounds like the manners is he's referring to is something akin to the the habits, the cultures, and associations of a people. So if you could describe more what you mean, why you chose the word manners, and also how might we recover those things today for the sake of our own economy? I don't know if you if Burke's if we're talking about the relevance and during relevance of Edmund Burke, maybe he has some prescriptions for us. Yes. Yeah, thank you for raising that this issue of um, the word manners in my title. Manners in Burke's understanding, it was it 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 was more than sort of rigid moral principles. Think of, you know, for those listening, think of Kant, his categorical imperative, his practical imperative, um, these universal rationalistic principles that don't, that uh, pass a universalizability test and don't fall into self-contradiction. Uh, Burke did not adopt morals in this excessively, excessively rationalistic sense. Um, sense. Uh, Thomas, you were suggesting manners for him reflected were a product of, in, they informed all these things the development of custom um, over time, um, a code of manners, which um, was considered to be part of what was called sort of a distinction of ranks in which each person in a hierarchy of society held particular obligations. Um, Burke had a great um, uh, uh, aphorism. I think it was something like uh, the situation of man was, is the preceptor of his duty. Situation of man is preceptor of his duty, something like that. Um, and what Burke meant by that is that each individual in society, based on the situation that they are in um, at that time, if you're an aristocrat, commoner, monarch, jurist, merchant, you held particular responsibilities um, and duties that demand demand fulfillment based on your status um, in that uh, in that chain of hierarchy. And so, for example, as I mentioned today, those with power and privilege in this time, the concept of noblesse oblige, they, there was a moral obligation to um, care for the poor, care for the sick. Uh, service stewards of property, provide charity, uh, same with religious institutions at that time. Uh, and the same expectations could not be expected of those for more modest circumstances. And so for Burke, manners encapsulated this whole process of um, sort of an, an ethical code, but an ethical code that wasn't necessarily carved into stone, but the the development of these habitual acts of virtue throughout time um, that that reflected the particular duties that each individual uh, possessed um, in in the society with complex social orders. Uh, for him, um, conveyed or pr- promoted an element of civility that was furnished also by the idea of chivalry um, that allowed relations to take place both economically and politically and socially. Um, that for him, otherwise, if you don't have this uh, this code of manners, that any sense of social civility um, would um, would dissolve. And for him, the French Revolution was a blunt attack on this idea of manners. Just again, historically grounded, not based on precognitive or a prioriistic notions of, uh, of morality, but those that have been embedded in, in long-lasting institutions throughout time. In terms of application for today, the difficulty is that Burke, um, as I mentioned, he was, you know, he was writing before mass industrial, industrialization, mass capitalism, um, the idea of pauperism around right, the 19th century um, that Topo was discussing uh, before the uh, um, liberal internationalism, post the post-colonial order, all those things he, he was writing before then. Nevertheless, I do think there are some prescriptions that we can glean from his thought. One, simply the basic insight, one of the, one of the most fundamental ones he provides in his attack on the French Revolution is that uh, 
individuals, particularly those in power, need to be sensitive to the complexity of circumstance, that there are various shades of life, different social activities, different people with different interests, um, preferences, skills, experiences in society that should caution legislators, administrators before imposing an inflexible one-size-fits-all rule on society. And I think this is one of the, this, this is a conventional application, the, the most, one of the clearest applications of, of Burke in reasoning today. Um, but the next up, I think, he did not veer as deeply into the sort of Hayek's idea of you know, epistem- radical epistemolo- epistemological humility. As for Hayek, right, it's, it's very difficult to know anything in life, so let's, let's de- decentralize. And the, um, I, I'm certainly sympathetic um, to that reasoning that we have to be uh, aware of the complexity of society and therefore prevent the concentration of power. But for Burke, there was this firm religious moral foundation, um, ultimately divi- uh, divinely inspired by God, is a, a firm theist um, manifested in uh, these religious institutions. Um, and so another application would be to, as you were suggesting, revive, strengthen religious institutions in society. And for him, his preference was Christianity and Ang- Anglican Christianity, but he was also sympathetic to other religious traditions, um, Judaism, uh, Islam, and as I mentioned, he made some, made some fav- favorable comments. In his plan for the gradual abolition of slave trade, he actually allowed he, he one of his prongs for gradual abolition was either to provide religious instruction in Christianity for slaves, or he also allowed room for the practice of indigenous religious traditions um, of Africans. So he there was some leeway um, in in in, in, uh, in his approach to religious instruction. Another example is similar to religious instru- institutions, a revival of civil society, which the phrase has been often discussed in the past five, six years or so, uh, reflecting sort of the revival of liberal liberal communitarianism in the 1980s and 1990s. So it's almost becoming trite. But I still think it's, a, it's a, an appropriate application of Burke's idea of these corporate affiliations in society that transcend individual gratification. Um, that again, provide a sense of belonging and purpose that otherwise we would struggle to maintain in private. Also, the idea, this is, you know, it's, it's uneasy to discuss from American, American perspective, because, you know, we like to think we, you know, we didn't have a feudal past, we, we don't have hereditary nobility, but this aristocratic notion of uh, a individual, let's say an instructor, let's say, just in my case, an instructor professor on the one hand and a student on the other hand, there is a body of knowledge and wisdom that should be expected to be transmitted from those with influence to those who are seeking to gain influence, uh, seeking, to, seeking to pursue the truth, seeking to pers- uh, uh, alert, um, uh, form habits of character. Um, and so it's not simply um, in the classroom, but I mentioned this in our discussion today, but even business leaders who are, entre- who are, are well, de- well deserving of accolades for their entrepreneurship, um, I think it's very, it would be very, very consistent with Burkean reasoning to uh, believe that they also hold moral and social responsibilities in, in society to A, act personally speaking with character. B, promote um, character formation in society, uh, and uh, 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 and then generally speaking, be aware that if you do have privilege, um, with it comes greater responsibilities than if you were in other um, uh, uh, positions in life. So uh, there are some so a couple of prescriptions I think could be applied today that reflect, you know, in good faith, you know, Burke's uh, political and economic thought. Mm. Well, we are nearly out of time, but we I think it'd be good to ask you this question. After a lengthy discussion on Burke, it used to be a question that we used to ask all of our guests on this podcast. We've gotten away from it, I guess. But let me just ask you, what is conservatism? <laughs> oh, gosh. Conservatism is conserving the best of a particular civilization 
Uh, and I intentionally am not saying just Western civilization, because I think there it can be forms of conservatism in non-Western civilizations. Conserving the best in the civilization, reforming the worst, and having this idea of conservation and reform grounded in a understood to be part of a divinely inspired moral and sacred compact in society, which generally speaking would include commercial prosperity, but also if it requires tempering commercial maximization to promote religious and social um, uh, uh, causes, then one can strike a necessary balance between the two. I think it's also very reflective, even though Aristotle was clearly uh, lived prior to modern conservatism. I think this idea of the golden mean, as I mentioned in my talk, is very harmonious with conservatism's underlying moral philosophy, that in life there are tensions and conflicts that may not be able to be fully resolved neatly, mathematically, quantitatively, and as individuals, as, um, with, as imperfect, fallible individuals, um, one needs to accept that not every single ideal principle rule can be fully developed and at the very least promote a healthy coexistence among these various elements that promotes, in the Aristotelian sense, human flourishing, in the Burkean sense, human flourishing combined with a theistic conception of God in a divinely inspired moral order. Uh, it just reminds me a lot of what I've learned in my history studies as a history major in college. It's like people are messy and we might want to go back and backfit some sort of perfectly ideological or principled set of behaviors or patterns to people's actions or to historical circumstance. But a lot of the discipline is trying to figure out what's going on in the mess of life. But on that note, I want to thank you for joining us today, Greg. And like I said, there are a lot of articles that you're working on and you just wrote a book, came out a couple years ago. So Commerce and Manners and Edmund Burke's Political Economy. But if people want to keep, stay up to date on what your work is, including those forthcoming articles, where can they find you? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I have a burgeoning Twitter account of, uh, I don't even know, like 500, 600 followers. But if I'm on Twitter, um, I will post now and then. Um, I'm not as active as some other uh, Twitter users. Um, but you can find me there. I'm also on uh, Yale University's website. Uh, if you're, you know, I'm happy to have you as a friend on Facebook, um, which I'll post now and then. And I typically publish uh, these days in academic journals, sometimes published in um, popular outlets. But uh, those uh, poke around um, for those, uh, uh, those general avenues for, for my further research. Great. Thanks again, Greg. And thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head on over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.